brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. Since its ascendancy as a premier maritime power, the U.S. Navy, especially in all things under the sea, we've always looked at ourselves as pushing the edge of the envelope to use technology to our advantage, pushing the quality over the quantity. We saw that in spades during the Cold War. We made significant and steady progress, at least on the first two steps of the kill change chain when we were looking at submarines, mines, and everything else to locate, to track them, make sure we know what's going on under the ocean in case we had to actually engage it in time of war. And we continue to build that tradition today. Um, and technology changes and also the uh, international legal environment changes as well. And one of the things that we use, not just uh, under the water, but in all things, is to build a little, test a little, learn a lot. And if you don't do that equation in the right order or completely, uh, many times you can find yourself not quite having the tools that you need to do the job or, even more dangerous, have something you think that works but does not. And knowing uh, our technological track record, if you put on your red hat and think if you're a potential adversary who may not be able to match us in, if if not technology, at least the imaginative application of technology, then you need to look at other ways you might be able to get around the American comparative advantage. And we're going to talk about one of those areas uh, that they, uh, you can find the links over at the show page to their article, Undersea Lawfare. Can the U.S. Navy fall victim to this asymmetrical warfare threat? And we want to look at that ability to get around our comparative, competitive advantage by potential competitors and adversaries. And for the full hour today, we have both uh, co-authors of that article uh, with us to discuss this in related issues in more detail. They will be Rear Admiral J. Michael Carlos Johnson, U.S. Navy retired, and Captain Michael T. Palmer, USN, also a judge advocate general. Our Jags. 
Rear Admiral Johnson retired after 33 years of service as a naval aviator that included combat in Vietnam, Libya, the Balkans, and the Persian Gulf. He commanded the JFK Battle Group, Carrier Wing 8, and VFA 86. He served ashore on the staffs of the CNO as Director of Aviation Plans and Requirements and also the J-3 at UCOM. Captain Palmer is still on active duty as a JAG. He is also an adjunct assistant professor at ODU in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. He served as an environmental counsel to the CNO, U.S. Police Forces Command, and Commander Navy Region Mid-Atlantic. As a final note before I bring our guest on, I would just like uh, to remind everybody that uh, during the course of the show, the opinions and statements of our guests are solely their own, and they do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Navy, the Naval War College, or any organizations they are employed by are associated with. With that check out of the block, Admiral Johnson, Captain Palmer, welcome to Midraps. Thanks for having us aboard. And uh, just like with our guests, we really appreciate you taking time on this uh, beautiful Sunday to join us. And, and to kick it off, I thought, uh, and what was the hook for me for your article is, uh, as he is a footnote in the article, uh, there's another active duty uh, JAG Stubelt, and uh, a little over a year ago over at USNI West, he was on a panel when we were looking at things that we can do to help uh, shape the direction of China and Westpac. And part of that was using a little peacetime lawfare in an offensive manner to talk, to find ways to uh, shape the direction they're going in. And when I saw the title to your article, I was like, you know what? At no point, as we do many times when we think of weapons and, and uh, tech, techniques, tactics uh, to use offensively, many times we don't appreciate the fact that those very concepts uh, can be used very effectively against us, especially when you consider that we like to consider ourselves a nation of laws and one that respects international law, perhaps, or at least... Uh, uh, we like to believe that we do better than average globally. And so, uh, Admiral Johnson, I'll just roll this way uh, to you to start off with. In the title, Undersea Lawfare, Can the U.S. Navy Fall Victim to This Asymmetrical Warfare Threat? Where does lawfare in the international realm or even domestically specifically endanger our ability to conduct operations under the sea? Well, so as you know, there, uh, the United States has always been and partnered with most of the Western nations, which are nations that were founded on the basis of adherence to law. Most of our adversaries in the 20th and 21st century have not been so encumbered. And one of the areas that frequently, you know, even in my retirement years down in Jacksonville here, I see a headline in the paper is Navy conducting undersea warfare training and sonars driving whales ashore in the Bahamas. And so you get environmental groups who go out and they headline and trumpet these uh, myths that, as they turn out, uh, and as such get courts involved. And, and the next thing you know is the Navy's hands are tied and our our ability to train across all the spectrums of our undersea warfare uh, become hindered. Uh, and that really becomes apparent uh, when you see 
how it is applied to Western allied nations versus nations around the world who are not so encumbered. And uh, as in the research that we did, mostly by Mike Palmer, my, my former JAG in my battle group, uh, Mike uh, did some extensive research and, uh, and lays out clearly in this article the myth that the Navy's sonars are the, are the biggest killers of the uh, whales and, and other mammals that, that ply the oceans where we do. Uh, and it turns out that the, the proving of how many whales or dolphins or other uh, marine mammals that we have uh, directly related to sonar use is a handful versus the many thousands that are constantly whaled by other whaling nations around the world or even the untold number that might be affected by uh, exercises by those who are not necessarily our allies. That's what really led us to have a discussion over dinner one night and say, you know, a, a lot of these areas uh, are very uh, loosely discussed, but never really in a forum where we consider the fact that uh, our, our enemies or our potential enemies may be using our own laws uh, to hinder our future military capabilities. Over to you. Well, uh, Admiral and, and uh, Captain Plummer, um, I, I view this article as very much a cautionary tale, and and it was a mixed kind of mixed uh, emotions when I was reading it, because I'm familiar with, uh, as an oil company lawyer back in another life, uh, I'm very familiar with the public interest research groups and the stuff they do to to uh, attempt to. to uh, Jiu-jitsu uh, activities of a large corporation into not only uh, stopping that activity but but uh, funding themselves because of the way the laws are written. So you know, and then as I was reading the article, I thought, well, you know, these guys are a little paranoid because they they may be seeing things that aren't quite there. And that was one side of it. The other side of it was, as I got through the article, it was sunshine is the best disinfectant. That it's it's I think it's a very timely article to bring out the points that you all have made about about the potential and, and, in, and the de facto uh, issues that are raised by, by these groups. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about, about uh, why this is asymmetric warfare and, and how it fits into the, the lawfare scheme that uh, uh, General Dunlap came up with uh, a few years ago. And, and maybe, Mike, you want to take that to start with? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, I'd like to do uh, start by um, stating that our intent here was not a direct or indirect or asymmetric attack on any non-governmental organization, any environmental group whatsoever. This was intended purely as a thought experiment uh, for our nation's policymakers and military strategists. Um, and what I like to consider it a paradigm expander. And I think we do a really good job about thinking in assessing and mitigating against our symmetric threats. That's what we like to do is do the toe-to-toe -to -toe stuff. The asymmetric threats are just tougher to get a handle on. And we break those into traditional, traditional. And, and if you um, think about non-traditional, you really automatically go back to something like 9-11. And uh, commercial airliners and box cutters probably were not in the paradigm at the time, but those type of things need to be now. And if you can't really include, um, if you're not thinking about things like that then, uh, you're not thinking about 
potential use and misuse of the law as a potential weapon for military operations, uh, then what else could you not be thinking about and probably should be? So the issue is, uh, what, are we, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about attacking, casting any aspersions or attacking any non-governmental organizations. There are uh, lots and lots of groups out there of uh, really well-intentioned people who want to protect the environment. I, mean, I think we all do. I think as a nation we want to do it, and we carry that responsibility in the military as well. What we're saying, though, is it's important for us to think and get outside the box, truly outside the box, and just take a, a separate look or a, a new look, or potentially at a different angle or perspective at all of our institutions, not just the ones in the military, but look at the legal, look at the political, look at the international, and then take a hard look at it and say, could this be used in a way we simply haven't thought about to our detriment? And that's why we use the word unintended vulnerability. I think Congress was absolutely uh, well-intentioned when it did what it did with our environmental laws and put them in place and how we're going to fund those type of lawsuits. And I think we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit more. So the issue then becomes, how, how you know, could it be? Is it possible? We're saying it's possible. What we're doing, as you said, we're just hoping to set up a situation where people look at this and say, could something like this be used against us? And how would you go about doing it? And from that, we think all you have to really do is get in and copy the more successful and highly effective non-governmental organizations out there that are attacking us in the courts and international forums and trying to get us to stop training, testing, and potentially operating with things like low-frequency, mid-frequency, even high-frequency sonar. And the motivation of that, if it changes slightly, it can be used as a real detriment and for what we, you know, and the military believe would be all the wrong reasons. I always thought that much of the argument um, that you see, and, and I, again, if you, if you read something that is written by an advocate, you, you obviously are getting the advocate's view. But much of the discussion seems to me to be ahistorical in many ways, especially some of the arguments, uh, only using a technical term here, you know, the experiments we've done with bi-static acoustics um, with long-range, low-frequency, et cetera, and so forth, some using small explosive charges, that um, there's very little discussion of if, if this is impacting wildlife, marine mammals, et cetera, and so forth, it would seem to me that we had an incredibly large, long-endurance, uh, experiment that went on during the Second World War, during the War of the North Atlantic, when uh, tremendous amounts of ordnance was expended underwater, uh, hunting, killing, and sinking, and everything else. Uh, but I, I've never seen any discussion of any reports that uh, the marine environment was negatively impacted uh, by all that live ordnance up and down uh, across the North Atlantic. Indeed, I know many fisheries, the cod fishery for one, uh, flourished uh, during the Second World War because nobody was catching them. So after the Second World War, the, the, the cod catches were huge. Uh, has there been any effort when you're having a counter-argument against these NGOs and IOs to, to look back at historical examples uh, to, to see what if the effect, if any, had been seen in the past? Mike, I'll leave that to you from the legal side. 
Yes, sir, and thank you. <laughs> it um it is interesting when those discussions take place, and I can only obviously relate to the ones that I've been either part of or adjacent to at times through the general discussion, and um, a lot of cultural differences as well. And this, I don't think we should underestimate that. As far as what was going on in World War II or back as far as World War I when this technology was first developed and that's certainly employed in World War II uh, in the future as we get into the Cold War, I think it's an interesting question. I don't think culturally any of us were attuned to thinking about the environment the same way we obviously do today. And it's neither here, uh, here or there, good or bad. I just don't think anyone was actively tracking the concern because I think it was a risk assessment type of approach put in then that there may have been risk, but certainly the benefits of using the sonar to project military forces and go do what you have to go do to win the war, uh, I think paled in comparison to any perceived detriment at the time. So I don't think it was even a factor. I don't know why we have a luxury of that now. Uh, maybe it's a perceived uh, secondary or tertiary threat, or it's, a, it's not as real a threat, so we have more luxury to be concerned about that, or a belief that the technology has expanded and increased to the point where uh, we can do other things and don't have to resort to that uh, exact same type of sonar use or the uh, amounts being used, or it's just a cultural sensitivity to and a changing of the risk assessment uh, paradigm that I think there just might be less tolerance now for any uh, incidental environmental impacts uh, to marine mammals or to the physical marine environment, it's just, it, at least in some quarters. If I may approach it, I'll approach it from a slightly different manner. Uh, the metric that's, that's different today than it was in the, the last major conflagrations is the fact that you have the Internet, you have international news, and you have things that can reach out and touch everybody in a much more poignant manner, but you know the same could be said uh, if the public knew we lost 42,000 airmen, the majority of which were done in training in World War II, would they have been concerned and stopped the war? If they had seen live on the internet the bombing of Dresden and Berlin and other places like that, would they have demanded that the war end? Well, you know there were people back in those days who were demanding that the war end for a lot of varieties of reasons. But it was really a better, uh, you know, a, a good versus bad and evil versus, you know, the black hats and the white hats. And, and we had a much bigger separation than we do today when you, you show a dying whale on the, on the beach someplace and then you point to a Navy ship or aircraft off the coast and say, oh, it's his fault. Uh, you get a lot of press out of that. So uh, emotion plays a huge, huge part today where it didn't play a part in both law and the, and the making of law in our government without uh, resorting to sitting down and having discussions where you can agree to, to disagree agreeably. We don't know how to do that anymore, and we don't know how to sit down and challenge facts without getting emotion involved in it. And and that's where uh, I think we've lost control over what's more important to our nation, maintaining the ability to secure our borders. And I don't mean that from the Donald Trump building the wall standpoint. I mean that just from the standpoint of, of being able to protect our, our sea lanes of communication, which still transport 95% of the goods 
going to and from the rest of the world. And that therein lies probably the very biggest difference. And I agree with Mike, we're not after one organization or another that has not even entered our mind. It's just that not only did we question whether we're looking at this, but we question whether it is going on or not. And if I may follow on with the Admiral as well, I think another important factor that has changed is in 1940 we did not have a statutory regime in environmental protection that we have now. The technology has been there through the 40s, 30s, till the present. Um, tactics have certainly changed, speed, everything else. But there hasn't been the background of the legislative protections that we have in place now. There was no National Environmental Policy Act. We had no Marine Mammal Protection Act. We had no Endangered Species Act. We had no Coastal Zone Management Act, and I can go on. You know, we have over 100 different statutes out there. The majority of those acts Congress passed took place in a very short period, starting in 19, around 1970 to 1972. All the major environmental laws came into effect. The irony, of course, being that it occurred during a very conservative Nixon administration. But it's when those laws came into place, and then the federal government gets involved by standing up the EPA, and then we have state EPAs, that, and then we have Congress waiving their sovereign immunity, the federal government's sovereign immunity, which means you can sue the federal government, you can seek injunctions against the federal government uh, for these violations, and that's all good stuff. The Congress said, no, we're serious about this. We want federal agencies to be responsive, and we want our federal government to be held to the same standard and potential liability as any other entity in the United States that's going to be regulated. So we didn't have those statutes in place, so there were no tools in the toolbox for the regulators and the American public to enforce environmental protection, and there's no tools in the toolbox that could be taken out and potentially be misused or malapplied by potential enemies and uh, through whatever means, whether it's an NGO proxy or pick a form. Well, I, I think you all are too polite. I mean, this <laughs> Congress created this situation, <laughs> created a situation where uh, we've got our own self-created Trojan horse here, and I think you guys have done an excellent job in this article of pointing out um, the existence of the risk that an unfriendly uh, force um, could use our own laws against us to prevent us from doing, in this instance, the training in sonar. Uh, and, and I think, Admiral, you just put your finger on a, a real key component of this, which is the, the public awareness uh, or creation of a public awareness of a, of a threat to, and you name it, the, uh, you know, the snail darter, the, uh, the whales, the, the porpoises, and the, you know, the uh, um, crab. Yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, whatever they are, we've got they're they're endangered. And 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 after Star Trek Four, which I think is the one where they came back and saved the whales, uh, you know, it's it's pretty much nobody can who who can stand up day and say, well, I don't care if we kill a couple of whales uh, for for sonar training. It, it's a very tough uh, fight. Uh, and and you know, it, I guess part of the question is that since Congress created the situation, and I think uh, Mike, you just hit on it with the with the uh, waiver of sovereign immunity, can they go back now and stick the genie back in the bottle and say, well, except when we decide that uh, national security uh, uh, is overweighs the the rights of the mammals? Well, you know, 
this is Admiral Johnson again. Look at what uh, Congress did to try to help with the Patriot Act uh, aftermath and develop a legal system that could review uh, the inputs from people who wanted to to use uh, various means to, to gather information against the public, whether it be the U.S. or others. And it was reviewed in a, uh, a, a judicial environment with those who were very knowledgeable, and you have the Apple case that's ongoing, uh, so that you could see whether the right of the public exceeded the right of the national security. And we have the same thing going on right here. So if you have disagreements or if you have suspicion that things and laws may be used against you, there should be some method set up that allows you to review that in front of them and have somebody who can, who can uh, produce a uh, ruling that says it's the greater good of our nation that we should do this. And there should be an appeals process, et cetera, that goes along with it. You know, the thing I'm looking for from the, the national opinion side of things, I'd love to see somebody produce a movie that showed the consequences of things like this versus just showing the military as the bad guy who's always wanted to set off the big bomb. Yeah, it's, um, boy, the that's a fascinating issue, and it really goes right to the very core of what we are as a nation. I mean, we've intentionally set up a constitutional government with checks and balances. And having laws in place are important, but they don't mean anything until you can get a judicial branch side of the House to enforce it. And let's face it, lawsuits and injunctions are, um, and even sometimes potential criminal liability where someone's going to have to pay for their own defense counsel and spend time in jail are really good incentives to get compliance because they work. And I think at the time when Congress passed it, that's what they wanted. They wanted all the goodness. And certainly no one was thinking about how could this possibly be bad anywhere for anybody. So the question really is, at this point in the sophistication of the argument, is it time to go back and do some adjusting? And I think both authors are clearly in agreement with that concept. And, and I'll tell you that um, there's a couple of options that can be done. It doesn't have to be a full-on open liability um, it has to be a balance. It has to be a recognition that uh, the president and his agencies has to comply uh, with environmental protection. It's been drafted in as a mission requirement for us now. It's discussed in the national defense strategies, and it is put in place, I can tell you, every single day as part of our ethic out here in, the, um, in our air stations, airfields, and our NSC. So I think we're there culturally. Uh, some tweaking? Could we benefit from tweaking? Absolutely. Uh, one option is um, there are some areas that uh, the president, through his executive order capabilities and authorities, puts in place. We have the National Environmental Policy Act, that NEPA, that requires environmental planning and assessments of environmental impacts of our major federal actions when inside the United States. Uh, the president recreated that same type of requirement for our activities overseas, and it's an executive order, and it puts the same requirements on the federal agencies to do the proper environmental assessments and impact statements and planning and uh, before you take any actions that are going to affect any of our, our allies or anyone else we're working with. It just doesn't have the teeth because you cannot enforce an environmental, um, excuse me, an, an executive order uh, through the courts. We have the uh, Coastal Zone Management Act. Now, just and then one more example. 
I think uh, Congress got this one right because it's a little bit later in, in the time frame, and it, it shows a really clever sophistication because Congress puts into the act that the federal agencies have to comply with local um, and state coastal zone management requirements, whatever the state ones are, but the state has to put them in a package, send them up, get them approved by the Department of Commerce, and once the Department of Commerce approves of that, then federal agencies are on the hook for compliance. And here's the kicker. The requirement is compliance to the maximum extent practical. Maximum extent practical. And it's left to the agency discretion to decide that standard. Not, not the states, not the local governments, not even the Department of Commerce. And it is somewhat subject and can be challenged through the courts, and we certainly have our lawsuits involving CZMA and lots of interesting discussions and uh, challenges, especially coming out of uh, California. With, but it is a slightly different standard that at least defers to the agency itself to do the right thing and to say, yes, to the extent practicable, we will you know, employ this, this, and this. We can't do this or that. And then the head of the agency has a requirement to justify that, and if required, Department of Secretary of Defense technically has to sit down with the Secretary of the Department of Commerce and talk about it and weigh it out. And then um, I think it's an excellent model to think about getting into the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, whatever is required. And we were talking about uh, ocean environment protection right now, but it, there's no reason why it should be limited anywhere else. And just get in there and say that there is a unique mission to the Department of Defense. We have to have certain capabilities, and we're not going to abuse them. I think you outlined a couple of things. It's a perfect lead-in to my question. And, 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 Mike, I'll just go ahead and, while, while you spoke last, I'll just roll it your way. Um, there's no question that NGOs and even, even IOs are, are, are coming at our ability to test aggressively. They know what they want to do. They know what their ultimate end state is, and they're, they're going to use our system against us. And you outlined, I thought, really well, the limitations, rightfully so, I would say, of executive orders, uh, some of the peculiarities of working within a regulatory framework. Um, ultimately, though, if, if we want, if we get in a position that this becomes a significant threat to our national security, because there always is when you have competing priorities, the ability to find a balance, to know what's important, what's not, what is acceptable risk, what's an unacceptable risk. And that goes to Congress. And we have a Congress, for better or worse, no offense, uh, dominated by lawyers, but has a, a little increase in the last couple of years, uh, at least from a bipartisan standpoint, but has a very small percentage of people in the House and Senate that have a military background or an understanding of some of the depth and multiple angles to a lot of military-related issues such as this. And if you needed to have the right people to make sure that new legislation or modifications to existing legislation is done in such a way that you don't have significantly negative effects uh, on our national security, you need those advocates in the House and Senate. Are there some members of the House or senators that you would put in a category that would be able to, as an entering argument, pick up the article that, that, that y'all wrote and be able to understand that impact? And if there were, were legislative adjustments that could be made at some point down the road, 
could be one of those belly buttons you could press up at the Hill to perhaps get action that would uh, help at least clarify some fuzzy areas and defend some critical junctures. Oh, boy, that's a loaded one, right? Uh, and the short answer is no. I, I don't and can't provide any, any avenues for uh, soft power, you know, to get in and, and try to figure out how to do this. I simply don't have any experience working at that level, something at something like the Office of Legislative Affairs level or uh, on the E-ring would have to be thinking about that. Uh, I know that, that those type of things are looked at, especially with the, at the ASN level, uh, and that relationship they have, and and a lot of it, I think, is appropriately done at the professional staffer level. I know that's a lot of time and effort, and you know we have a lot of public affairs work done in this as well, getting those professional staffers and sometimes the members themselves out to familiarize themselves with the platforms and show them how we use a whale whale to identify species, and we have dedicated lookouts at sea and all the uh, mitigation measures we use and our computer programs, and sometimes we'll get them up and uh, give them briefings on an extremely expensive and complicated uh, modeling that we use to try to predict uh, marine mammal activity in a given exercise uh, water space. Uh, but no, I, I don't think I'm even close to being qualified to address that. Well, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, but to, to my knowledge, I don't know anyone in Congress right now, uh, and I, you know, I've been out of touch with the D.C. area for 10 years, so uh, you know, that nobody has, has addressed this openly, at least. They may be doing it behind closed in the security committees. I think it raises, um, the question was who, um, it raises an interesting issue on the how. And I think that's worthy of discussion. I think it's something we don't talk enough about. But how do you talk to Congress? How does the Department of Defense, through the President, talk to the Congress and communicate these type of issues? And right now, it's probably just anything like this is probably white noise and overwhelmed pretty clearly by the budgetary discussions um, and the cuts and the resourcing and everything else. So assuming you can even get bandwidth, how do you go about having that discussion? And I think it's interesting because I think, at least in the Navy, my experience has been we're dealing with our, our operators, um, the Admiral Johnsons of the world out there who are running battle groups and becoming fleet commanders and all this, and... Uh, uh, coming generally uh, really technical backgrounds, sometimes I call them engineers, and as, sometimes there's an analog to digital interface issue that we worked over where we really like the science. We believe in our science. We, as a Navy, spend more than anyone else in the world on its marine mammal impacts and oceanographic environmental impacts of our operations uh, funded through places like Scripps and Woods Hole and everything else. And we like that. We have the science. We're, we're looking at it. We're trying hard. We, we're the ones developing the models for the regulators uh, to use to decide if they're going to let us have our permits to go do what we, we think we have to do. And I'm not sure that is going to be responsive to the people that matter, the people that may be on a professional staff or, or sitting on committee or even the ones that are out there. And, and personally, um, I know People talk about Joe Sixpack. I think the real influential person here is someone I like to refer to as Jane Merlot. And Jane's probably a 40-ish soccer mom with 2.3 kids at home, a dog and a minivan. And she's probably the one that is very concerned if we do get her attention, or somebody's getting her attention, probably the opposition, concerned about the environment and what uh, the Navy's up to because she probably doesn't understand what we're doing, probably doesn't have any affinity with it, maybe averted 
uh, by military issues. And uh, but she's worried about her kids, and she's uh, she thinks she understands because she's being told that we have these death rays blasting miles of ocean space and killing marine mammals. I know my mom is. I knew we were kind of losing the strategic communication fight. When I called home one night, my mother said, why is the Navy killing all the whales? So um, very effective. And, and, you know, when you're explaining, you're losing. And, uh, and sometimes we go back to explain, and we might not even be on the same frequency of what's really responsive. And it's hard because as a federal government, you know, we don't do propaganda. We're really not going to spend the money and efforts to go out and, and pulse the American public to find out really what's going to resonate with them and then determine the effectiveness of the opposition's strategic communications plan and then somehow find a way to come back and battle it and, and then overcome it. And we have that issue too. We'll, we'll take well-meaning, really smart admirals who believe in their mission and we send them out to small groups and town halls and to talk to regulators and provide affidavits to send up to the Supreme Court. And it's hard. We're just not used as a culture to explaining why we do what we have to do and why it's important. So it's, it's an interesting well, cultural I'm not sure. aspect to it. Well, there is, but I'm not sure you're entirely accurate there. I mean, we do, and for the first time in my recent memory, I think we've just produced one of the best uh, America's Navy-type advertisements where we are blowing our own horn about America's Navy, but we don't carry that a step farther. Uh, and you could build the same type of America's Navy advertisement to go in those 30-second slots for Super Bowl or wherever you want to spend all that megabucks on. And, uh, and you advertise the Woods Hole Connection and all the other things that we do that prevent tsunamis from killing a lot of people around the world. And I mean, all the, all the uh, environmental things that we do from the weather station reporting, I mean, a lot of the weather stuff is really related to what Naval at Sea uh, and, and, and NOAA have done in conjunction with the U.S. Navy. Uh, all of the tidal stuff, all of the, the, uh, the things that are going to, to uh, you know, measure the true effects, if you will, of the uh, potential to rise, of rising sea levels, et cetera. But at the same time, you do the same multi-pronged attacks as you've always done, and that's work with the professional staff and the armed services and the Senate armed services in the House uh, committees to uh, make sure that the impacts are clearly articulated. And if it's having an impact on national security, those are your advocates in Congress, and they have to articulate it on the floor uh, to, through, through law or through uh, making sure that there is a checks and balance to the judicial side. We just have to make sure we press the issue instead of duck and cover. Well, right. I think you, you feel it. it's a PR battle to a large extent, though. And, and when someone comes to you uh, and says, you know, the, we need to, to stop the Navy from using sonar because it's for the whales, you know, that, that is a much, uh, very challenging argument to, uh, to meet and, and, and throw back and say, yeah, you know, we're, we're in favor of saving the whales, but we've also got, we want to save your kids. I mean, there's got to be, uh, and I think you're right. I mean, you've got to engage in the discussion, but it's got to be on terms, uh, not just the scientific. Uh, this will benefit us. Da da da. It's got to be, you know, back to that uh, basic uh, function of the service. We're here. We're not doing this because uh, it, it just makes us fun, and, and we think it's great to go turn the water up. We're, we're out here trying to protect you, and uh, and 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 go from there. So I don't know, you know, it, it struck me as I was reading through this, it's a balance between 
what we got used to with Ralph Nader and his groups of, you know, we're going to throw something out against some large organization, and if it sticks, they're going to be defending themselves forever, whether or not what we originally said was true. And that, that seems to me to be one of the fundamental struggles that we face in this. And I'll take, and I'd like to hear your views on that. I'll go first. And uh, again, we're talking about asymmetric threats and then the best asymmetric threat, and I think the jiu-jitsu is a great analogy, is, is when you find a means of a nation's or, or opponent's strength and then twist it around and use it against them. So talked about lawfare in the, in the article. We talk a lot about use of our environmental stewardship that we pride ourselves on as a nation and a Congress wants and everything else, and then an ability to fund those things for people that can't afford it. One of the other asymmetrics issue is the, and it goes back to the last question as well, is that we as a Department of Defense and representatives of the executive branch and this federal government, we are bound to communicating the truth. Until it's absolutely proven and true, we don't do it. That's entirely different set of rules on the other side. The truth doesn't necessarily matter. And if you're seeking shock and awe on an emotional level, uh, you can come out and a lot of us have been shocked personally in the end about almost the irresponsibility of some of the statements out there that don't even appear to even try to be true, and it doesn't matter. It's, it, again, it, it's two different games being played on the field. So if we're bound to the truth, and then you're bound into a long process of how we're going to discuss and communicate and get out, you lose that whole OODA loop. They're well inside us. Uh, Decision-making uh, – is happening faster and, and more responsive and certainly more nimble uh, to move on to different things. And comes down to what's acceptable risk. That's how we look at it. What's an acceptable risk? We know, and you can talk about anything. We can talk about the numbers of birds that, that fly into glass planes and sliding glass doors every year, but you lose some birds, and, and generally as a, as a society we say the benefits of having glass outweighs that, and it's an acceptable risk. There are Animals and deer, unfortunately, hit every day on highways. Uh, we don't start banning cars. It's, 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 it's unfortunate. No one's going to appreciate you know, and encourage it, but it's deemed an acceptable risk. There just seems to be something, something else going on here about what is an acceptable risk um, when it comes to marine mammals, certainly, and then the, uh, the ocean itself. And in the article, we, you know, we note that over that 10-year period, 600,000 estimated scientific study of, of marine mammal bycatches uh, to support commercial fisheries, which is important, and that seems to be acceptable. And um, the amount of whales that may be correlated or have some impact of, of many factors, not just a simple taking a sonar pulse off their dome at 140 decibel, it doesn't seem to be acceptable. You know, I, I guess every El, El Nino or something, uh, they have these incidents near La Jolla and everything else where just tons of shrimp, excuse me, squid, just wash up on the beaches. And they go out in the newspaper, you know, people come out and the TV folks, and they usually just bulldoze them over, and they mention about the stink and what a nuisance it is. So what is it about the shrimp? Because what is it, not a mammal? Is it anthropomorphic type of affinity to a mammal or because we had flipper in the 60s? There's just something special going on about marine mammals that uh, have elevated up. I know, um, not too surprising, one of the cities in, uh, on the California coast there uh, moved out and, and had an ordinance passed or something that 
that made the marine mammals uh, citizens of the city so they could have the protections. So there's just something going on that's uh, about the marine mammal issue or it's being uh, extremely responsive and resonates somewhere or it's just a very effective marketing hook uh, to get something else done. But it is fascinating. You'll have to ask SeaWorld about that. Yeah. I, I think you, you brought on a... Um, an important subject because it's it's difficult and you know Admiral Johnson mentioned before that uh, when we were talking about you know who are advocates up on the hill that uh, there's a little bit of ducking and covering uh, because it's hard to address hard issues which is of course why people are paid the big bucks to begin with but you have this ongoing battle of fighting emotion and feelings with that with facts science critical thinking and compromise, which is what all life is about, is, is finding a compromise and finding that balance between, you know, what is acceptable risk, what is acceptable cost. Um, and in some ways, you got to wonder when it comes to this whether um, a lot of this is already set. You, you mentioned before uh, that a lot of this uh, is already inside our lifelines, and, and I would uh, offer people to follow the link to the article and read it. And on page 140, y'all have a list of the international sonar actions. And international bodies always kind of make me itchy, uh, simply because they're they're not accountable uh, to the uh, American voter. But we're under we we put ourselves under that yoke. And you have like the perfect example I like to go to is. An absolute monarchy with a horrible human rights record known as Saudi Arabia leads the U.N. Human Rights Panel. So just because it, it has an international stamp to it doesn't necessarily mean that it has anybody's interest or operates under a, a Western standpoint. And the first thing you had, um, the 1994 United Nations Convention of Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS, it regulates quote, pollution of the maritime environment and defines it in relative part as the, quote, introduction by man directly or indirectly of substance or energy into the marine environment. So UNCLOS Treaty defines acoustic sonar as pollution. And uh, you even have our erstwhile European allies, mostly, uh, in the uh, European Parliament back in 04. They called for resolution for the moratorium on military sonars, and when you follow the all-important uh, footnotes there, is, uh, the, the EU and its member states, quote, adopt a moratorium on the deployment of high-intensity active naval sonars until a global assessment of their cumulative environmental impact on marine mammals, fish, and other marine life has been completed. And I can say this because I'm married to a, a lawyer, but that's just the Lawyer Full Employment Act. You'll never reach that point. Um, so here we have decades where the, the, the ground has already been set. So what is our firewall here? Um, is there any support from our Western allies, when I say Western uh, governments who are actually accountable to other people that, that have significant interest in being able to project and defend and blue water, uh, the UK, France, Japan specifically, um, to be able to put a firewall against these international uh, agreements that many of them have already signed up to. Yeah, uh, great point. Admiral, you want this one? I'll just start off with saying that it used to be 
the presidents or leaders of those countries who would stand together in solidarity and they would say, not on my watch, our national security takes the number one priority. Haven't heard that in a long time. Right. The, um, it's interesting because uh, if you dig into the definition um, and it's recognized, you know, at uh, General Dunlap and others, uh, one of the key components of lawfare is be first at the table to write the regs. And I think that's what you're seeing in the international fora here. I think the NGOs, which are non-state actors and new to the stage, we haven't quite figured out where they fit in because we're still dealing with this paradigm of nation states and, and, and it's great parallels to how we're supposed to deal with them like we're dealing under the rules of engagement, the law around conflict and these other issues too. Uh, we're not dealing with traditional Napoleonic battle of order and traditional nation states. We have new actors floating around in certain sovereign or non-sovereign areas and then what do you do with them? Are they enemy combatants or are they opponents? And so they're showing up and the NGOs are the ones writing those lawyer-like resolutions and they're getting seats on tables of committees and they're starting to take control of the process. And then you get to write the agenda when you do that. You're writing the agenda and you can create the crisis, you can come up with the solution and you can start getting things that, that carry at least a pseudo and premature of authority because it comes out, it says an EU resolution sounds pretty important and you want to start building a, a groundswell and, and uh, just asymmetrically knock your opponent off before they're even in the ring. And, and, and two parts of that, there's something else going on too when you talk about the international forum and all the rest, and, and it has to do, and it's an esoteric issue, but um, it has to do with something about how we as a people approach problems. And traditionally, Americans were very practical people, very Roman-like in our approach and uh, technologically based. And uh, we adopt not only how we build bridges and buildings and everything else, but we adopt generally as a culture something called a risk assessment approach. You know, you assess the factors and, and, and look at the benefits uh, of an action or the use of a certain technology and then assess uh, the risk to it, what can go wrong with it, and then we mitigate to the extent practicable or feasible to we get to the point where we say that's an acceptable risk or that is acceptable losses because the greater good is going to benefit here for whatever reason. It depends on your safety factors for human food consumption, uh, how strong and how safe a bridge has to be to allow cars to go over it, and then certainly the way we think about it and uh, how we employ energy into the water uh, for, for environmental protection. And if we go back in 1970, 72, that's what Congress was thinking about when they wrote the laws, when they told these regulators to get in there and take a look at the activity and then mitigate down to a certain point, and then you give authorization, you're the check on the system, you authorize the five years of this type of activity because we're pretty sure that we've done everything we could to protect the human environment and marine mammals and everything else. Okay, there's another game being played, and it's called the precautionary principle, and it comes out as, you know, most... Very many different iterations. One of them is the wingman statement. But that just flips the risk assessment right on its head. So instead of identifying the risk and mitigating down to what's acceptable, the precautionary principle, as, as, a, as a viewpoint, how you approach a problem or what you expect out of your laws or what you expect out of your Navy or your leadership, this viewpoint is that the proponent of any technology or action has to prove before it's employed that it's safe. So you have to prove that it'll have no detrimental effects or 
on the human health of the environment. And in proving a negative, we've learned the hard way is extremely difficult, if not impossible, so you can always get into the game, well, we've done these studies and this. Nope, sorry, not good enough. Well, you, you haven't really proved it won't be safe. How do we know it won't affect us? Um, and, and it keys right into what's going on in the rest of society. I mean, we didn't know asbestos was going to come back and hurt people 40 or 50 years later. We don't know what's in the water and these hazardous waste sites we're digging up. So it's keying into very real concerns, legitimate concerns of people about future safety and uh, future health and everything else. So we have that we're dealing with. And I'll tell you, on the International Forum, what's really interesting, all that activity is going on. And if anybody goes from a government, it's probably, you know, someone from the EPA. Or I know um, Department of Commerce has an international office that kind of works and tracks on this. So what you're talking about is environmental regulators talking to other environmental regulators and environmental science and engineers all getting together and talking. What I don't think we're doing is understanding how important it is on those national delegations. And I'm not saying we don't do that. But I think there are often attempts to do this. But you have to get your DOD or Ministry of Defense representatives at the table as well to articulate the different concerns, advocate on behalf of these um, other requirements, and then do things, simple things, like simply saying, yes, that's a good thing to do, but in this regulation or in this treaty or this resolution, we have to have an exemption put in uh, for our naval warships and auxiliaries. And I think we're pretty successful at that when we're, it's important enough and when we're on the game and we're paying attention and doing it. But there's potential that things can sneak through. That's, that's an excellent point. Um, Let's go talk, talk a little bit about the Trojan horse prevention issue. If, if, uh, if, if there's a perception that it's possible for some foreign uh, power to uh, get involved with these groups, um, how, uh, how, do we, how can we make sure these groups are legitimate and uh, not, uh, as you put it, knowing or unknowing proxies of those who wish us harm? Admiral? Uh, <laughs> I think we outlined that a little bit in there, I and mean, the issue is, are they treating all uh, parties equally, whether it's the United States, whether it's Russia, whether it's China? You know, if they are developing a, a, uh, a law or a statute that's going to affect us, are they doing the same thing for everybody else, and is everybody else going to be equally capable of being controlled? If not, you know, and, and we'll be under them. Yes, and, and again, again, the difficulty of getting and cracking this nut. Uh, there are options. I mean, uh, one proposal discussed at times is maybe these groups should be registered and um, required to disclose certain things, like under the Foreign Agents Act, or as you would with any corporation, um, they might be uh, in as an incorporated or other legal entity. Uh, for the most part, though, no one tracks or has a right to a membership list. That's and working groups, real well with lobbyists, too. Correct. Same, <laughs> same type of assessment working on the lobbyist pieces, and um, you can... Well, I mean, it's not, there, work, it's not working for us. I'm not sure we can control it there. Either. I'm just a cynic when it comes to that. Oh, yes, sir. I was taking the perspective it's working very well for the lobbyists and their, and their clients. Maybe. I don't think so. 
the um, who, pay, who pays the guy who pays the guy who pays the guy. Tracking it back is very difficult. It is, and and we saw that in the political side with the uh, PACs and super PACs, and and if you have registration and required membership list, they're only you know they have to get them enforced, and then of course you run up against some really important other strengths about inhibiting First Amendment freedom of association, commercial speech, individual speech, and uh, it just looks like the government is starting to get a little too fascist. So I don't know if there's an answer. Well, speaking of fascist, uh, I wanted to kind of throw a, a semi-related question to you from the grounds that, uh, you know, you're not being paranoid if people are actually trying to get you uh, frame of, of thinking. And, and Admiral, I'll, I'll go ahead and roll this this way, being that uh, uh, I think you might even be as old as my co-host, so uh, this will be a little, a little more of your, your generational reference, perhaps. Uh, Ouch, that, hurt, that hurts you, Admiral, more hurts me. <laughs> <laughs> but if you recall, during the, the glory days of the Cold War, during the, the late 70s and, and early 80s, you had the ground-launched cruise missile Pershing a anti-nuke um, uh, protest that took place in the U.K. and a lot of places in Germany. And one of the joys of the 1990s was actually digging into the old Soviet archives while we could and seeing that a lot of these organizations were uh, at least partially funded and supported by the Soviet Union, the useful idiots of the left, well-meaning people that had nice ideas, but they were working for organizations that were uh, uh, being bankrolled by the communist parties. And when you look at some of these international organizations and um, non-governmental organizations that are involved in trying to hold back on us doing developments in the underwater spectrum, and the fact that they don't seem too interested, or at least it doesn't break above the, the ambient noise of the, uh, of the protest, they don't seem too interested in going after Russia that definitely does this type of work, are the Chinese and their horrendous pollutions of the, of the ocean. They seem mostly interested in primarily us and the European Union. Is, is there any view that these might, the Russians, Chinese, might be playing some of their old games and, and helping these organizations, if not at least actively, uh, perhaps, in international organizations, giving them opportunities to push issues to the front? The past is a great predictor of the future. You nailed it already. It's been done in the past. Why should we suspect that it's not being done today? Mike, well, you're the one that did a lot of the research. Yeah, I, from you know, obviously a personal standpoint, I think it's crazy, if not potentially even willfully negligent, if they're not in this game. Agreed. Now, can you prove well, it? No, can we? We're not out to do that. No. We're out to ask the <laughs> question, should somebody be trying to prove it? And the answer to that is yes. Well, even better, since the way that the Equal Access to Justice Act works, there may be these people who are, they don't even have to fund it. They can, they can stand somebody up for these organizations just enough where they then can apply for the tax, U.S. taxpayers to fund their activities uh, countering uh, our attempts to, um, to do some research with uh, someone or another devices. We can discuss that in our last six seconds. <laughs> Wouldn't you? <laughs> if Absolutely. 
Equal access to Justice Act was intended by Congress to have a means for um, small business to fight back against the federal government from overpowering uh, regulators, and it's intended to level the playing field, and then it's just too fertile. $750 an hour for attorney's fees and costs for environmental groups to bring these lawsuits against the federal government, against U.S. Navy. Um, They can be paid even if they lose substantively through a process, and so... They can hire the best law firms in L.A. and New York City and everything else. They Law firms, I think, will love this as well because they consider it, even though 750 is a little cheap for them maybe, uh, they really don't make too much money on it, but it's steady work. It's great training for their associates, and it also counts for community relations for their pro bono or uh, that type of support. So this is the perfect asymmetric weapon because you can stand these things up totally artificial, you can, they can start doing fundraising, and they can start. The American public will send checks, and we'll get corporate grants, and then it becomes um, a self-funded um, ice cream, self-licking ice cream cone as well. And it's just a, it's the ultimate uh, robotic fire and forget because it'll just go off and keep doing as institutions do. It'll just keep growing and taking on a mission and expanding with mission creep, uh, and, and then you don't have to worry about it. You just wound it up and sent it. That's it. Well, gentlemen, uh, we've already extended the show a little bit long. It'll be a, this part will be on the uh, in our archive. I really appreciate you all taking the time to be with us this afternoon. It uh, it's been very interesting. Uh, I, I'm sure we could gone on for several more hours on this topic, but uh, again, thanks a lot for being here today. Thanks, Alan. As you can probably guess, this was just uh, using the undersea warfare piece was just uh, you know just opening the the pie door. It applies across the spectrum of warfare. It sure does, and it's a, it's a topic that uh, I know makes some people's brains hurt, but that's why we have good staff JAGs to uh, get it all to the executive summary. But I really appreciate uh, both of you all coming on, and for those who joined us late, our guests today have been uh, Rear Admiral Michael Carlos Johnson, U.S. Navy retired, and also Captain Michael T. Palmer, USN, our resident JAG for all things environmental. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking time this Sunday to join us. Thank you very much for having us. And thank you very much to all our listeners. And until our next episode, we'll see you for another edition of MidRats. Hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Cheers. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. 
This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit.